Welcome back to Between Breast Podcast. I'm Jacko, a Master Instructor with the Oxford Advantage, and this is going to be the last in a little series that I've been doing, specifically looking at how brain injuries and concussions affect our breathing. This won't be the last uh, we'll ever hear or I'll ever do anything about this. Um, I'm looking to develop this further and I'm sure we're going to find out new things. And as that happens, I will obviously reporting about those um, or trying to relay that information to you to help you um, through the podcast, through the blog. Um, and so do look out for other things. But this is rounding off a little series that I planned out where in the first session we looked at um, how the, the research and the literature out there has been showing us for 60 years that concussions, brain injuries affect our breathing. And then we've been slowly looking at getting, building up that understanding to go, how can breathing be a way to help us tell us more about how well a brain has recovered, as well as an important tool to be able to improve cerebral blood flow, improve the brain's recovery and the function of the brain using breathing exercises and um, that is exactly what we're going to go through in this uh, final part. Not the last we'll ever hear about breathing concussion but the final part where um, I will just get as quickly into what are the assessments that you can simply do for yourself or if you're a practitioner working with people suffering from concussions and brain injuries. What are some simple assessments that you can do to get a gauge of how effective has their breathing been and then three simple exercises to just start letting that brain recover, start letting the nervous system uh, down-regulate and importantly improve that cerebral blood flow which is the key to improving oxygen delivery and uh, glucose, so energy to the brain so that it can start to recover and function better. With that cerebral blood flow trying to get oxygen to the brain as well as uh, glucose it's a great point to make with the, the sponsors of the podcast. So Ketone IQ from HVMN, our sponsors of the podcast. I've connected with them, worked with them for now for over six months, probably closer to a year. It's a product that I use now 10 years on from my brain injury to help with focus, with sleep. But there is some great research out there that shows that during that acute phase of a brain injury, when we have got that reduced cerebral blood flow, whilst we're trying to restore that with our breathing, supplementing with something like Ketone IQ, which is uh, energy fuel source for the brain not requiring uh, that glucose demand. So we can drink, we can supplement during an acute phase with ketones to give the brain a fuel source not reliant on that glucose. So it can be very, very helpful if you're working with people or you yourself um, in that acute phase. But equally, I'm noticing improvements in my sleep still, 10 years on, my focus, my concentration, and also using it for... Uh, a uh, endurance event, uh, a two-day ultra, ultra, <laughs> two-day ultra marathon that I'm running um, this weekend, and it's going to be fueled partly by Ketone IQ. So um, they are very kindly giving away a 20% discount to all Between Breaths uh, podcast listeners, and you just need to use code Jacko or so J A C K O at hvmn.com, or you can just follow the link in the in the description which is hvmn.com forward slash Jacko, and that puts the discount on for you automatically. So go check them out if you haven't yet. We enter this world taking our first breath, and sadly, we leave this place taking our last. And what I wanna do with this podcast is to explore what happens between those breaths. I'm David Jackson, Jacko, and this is the Between Breaths Podcast.
So in this episode, we're gonna get very practical for you. Um, thank you for those that have um, already been in contact asking about, okay, what are some of the things, simple things I can do to get started? I've tried to explain a little bit of that uh, in the previous episodes where I've shared my own story um, as well of how 10 years on, my the, the scar of my brain is, is now completely uh, gone on, a, on an MRI scan, so showing great um, you know, physical, clinical um, signs of improving that recovery. And I know that one major thing that I've done has been restoring my breathing. So um, we'll get into a bit more of the detail um, of that if you are really struggling or you're working with people and you want to know um, more detail, I'm going to be producing um, a course uh, on probreathwork.com that will have access to presentations and also tutorials for um, the simple exercises that people can follow or you can understand and then deliver it with your, uh, with your patients or with your clients and also be looking to do some presentations on this um, to wider groups of people too. So um, if you're interested in knowing more, uh, you can email me directly at info at probreathwork.com um, or uh, just keep an eye out for uh, details being released on that within on social media and on the email newsletter if you signed up for that. There'll be details within the blog too. So just before we get to the assessments and the exercises that we're gonna be doing to help our brains recover or our clients' brains recover, I just wanna cover off um, three uh, important factors as we get to this sort of stage. The first being like, what is the dysfunctional breathing patterns that we're potentially going to be seeing with people that have suffered the stress of a concussion or a brain injury. So what, what's, what does that dysfunctional breathing look like? Then the second part being that cerebral blood flow. Why is that cerebral blood flow such a key uh, thing to improve? And then why breath holding and restoring CO2 tolerance and sensitivity, why that is the number one important thing that we need to be doing. And then the final bit just around um, how our, our nervous system how our autonomic nervous system, how our stress response is being affected and why things like nasal breathing alongside recalibrating that carbon dioxide sensitivity or relationship is important during that um, exercises that we do, but also trying to get a gauge of like an assessment through our breathing of how has it been affected. So what is some of the dysfunctional breathing traits that we tend to see when someone has had a brain injury or a stress to the system? You know, this could be um, any type of stress to the system. There's a really great review done in 2021 from the European Respiratory Review where they're looking at what are those traits within dysfunctional breathing that we can start to understand and start to look out for. And some of those things or some of those primary things are the effect on the breathing muscles, effect on the diaphragm. And they described it, or in this review, it's described as a coping mechanism for the stress. One thing that they see is that the diaphragm flattens a little bit, reduces its ability to move or the space that it has uh, to move. And when the diaphragm starts to flatten and is a little bit more stagnant, then our accessory breathing muscles have to take a, take a part in or take a, a, a more of a leading role in getting air to come in and out to, to make that breathing happen. And what we see is then a bit of a cascade of events. It's linked to those sort of more upper chest um, breathing mechanics, less diaphragmatic, are we do know linked to our um, stress response. And then things that we see are respiratory rate increasing, which is a key one. We've seen in other literature that the respiratory rate is highly linked to the stress that we're under. So when we're more stressed, we're likely to breathe 
faster. When we breathe faster, we know that we're more likely to breathe shallower. And there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing coming in of like, is it the effect on the diaphragm? Is it the stress? But it, it, it's all linked in together. The, in terms of the, um, uh, the effect on those of us that are working with clients or ourselves from concussions and brain injuries, one of the big things is that respir faster respiratory rate leading to a reduction in carbon dioxide tolerance and end tidal CO2 like we talked about in the first episode. And what that's doing is as we start to reduce um, the, the body's relationship it has with carbon dioxide in a negative way, meaning that you don't tolerate as much carbon dioxide, we breathe faster and we tend to then therefore breathe more out. We know that carbon dioxide is a vasodilator and therefore when we have less of it within the body, it's vasoconstricting, so it actually reduces blood flow and it will reduce blood flow to the brain. So when we get specific to brain injuries and concussions, that cerebral blood flow, the major factor that's um, affecting it from our breathing perspective that we can manipulate and we can train is the, the, the reduction in CO2, so becoming less tolerable of it or more sensitive to it because we're breathing faster because of the change in our breathing mechanics and our breathing rate and the stress of the whole um, trauma and injury is that the, the blood vessels are constricting and we're reducing our cerebral blood flow or we're staying in a state of restricted cerebral blood flow unless we do something to address the body's relationship with carbon dioxide as well as those mechanics from better breathing. The other thing that reduction in carbon dioxide is doing is also not allowing oxygen to be released from the blood, from the haemoglobin within the blood that's carrying it, to get into the tissues itself. So we know that the brain needs glucose and it needs oxygen, and it's blood flow that's supplying those things. If we can improve blood flow through carbon dioxide, but when we improve the levels of carbon dioxide or the relationship the body has with carbon dioxide and it can tolerate a little bit more, then that oxygen delivery from the red blood cells into the tissues is more efficient, is more easily done. And so rather than having um, oxygen being slightly restricted um, in terms of its delivery from the blood, we can get oxygen more easily delivered to the brain from cerebral blood flow improvement, but also from an improvement in what's known as the Bohr effect, where carbon dioxide slightly reducing the pH of the blood. And when that pH of the blood is reduced, the, um, the haemoglobin reduces or releases its affinity that it has to oxygen. That's known as the Bohr effect. Christian Bohr in 1904, you know, over 100 years ago, noticed um, this, this effect that pH caused from, a reduction in pH caused from increased CO2 allows haemoglobin to release its oxygen more readily. So we're getting a little bit of a double whammy there for getting blood, which is going to take glucose and oxygen to the brain, but also getting oxygen in to the tissues itself. So we can start to see why improving that cerebral blood flow is absolutely key to the brain recovering because it's gonna be delivering the two things that the brain needs in order to function, function well, and also recover the glucose and the oxygen. I mentioned a little bit before from the um, podcast sponsors that there is a, um, a fuel source ketones that the body naturally makes, but we can supplement with. And so very thank you for Ketone IQ from HVMN that have produced a supplement that is great for all sorts of aspects, but in relation to um, brain injuries and concussion in that acute phase, there's some, some really nice research that's shown within the literature that we can sort of bypass that need for glucose during that phase whilst 
we're trying to improve cerebral blood flow, uh, giving the brain a fuel source that's not dependent on glucose, which would be our ketones. That's a natural thing that happens within the body, um, but we can supplement with these ketones specifically. So if you are you know, yourself or working with somebody with um, acute, within that acute phase, then it's definitely something, definitely look at the research. I'll put a link in the show notes for this. Definitely worth looking into that research. And you know, it's a, it's a, uh, there's no side effects to, to a supplement like um, ketones. It's just a clean fuel source for the brain that can provide that fuel source without the need for glucose one. When in that acute phase, um, uh, glucose delivery is a little bit compromised because that cerebral blood flow is compromised. And as I said before, in the, uh, the sponsor in the podcast, really grateful to them for that and offering 20% discount. So if you go over to hvmn.com forward slash Jacko, and Jacko, J-A-C-K-O, is the, the discount code to get 20% off. So from a breathing perspective, how can we improve that cerebral blood flow? What, what can we do? Will it normalize on its own? And as we've seen from the literature, like when our breathing has been affected, when our mechanics have been affected, when the respiratory has been affected, and when our chemosensitivity, so those central chemoreceptors in the brainstem, have been affected by the stress and trauma of the injury, they're not going to normalize on their own because it, it adapts and it adapts to a being more sensitive to carbon dioxide. And as we've just said, we want to get um, that relationship with carbon dioxide recalibrated so that um, we can improve that cerebral blood flow. What does that look like? Um, well, one of the things that's been well studied is breath holding. When we hold the breath, we're not letting any more CO2 out of the body. So we simply keep a little bit more inside. pH of the blood will change, get altered, will become slightly more acidic when carbon dioxide levels rise. And uh, that helps improve the CO2 within the body, helps with that vasodilation so that uh, we get an improvement in uh, blood flow and we'll get an improvement in cerebral blood flow and also that increase in carbon dioxide, decrease in the acidity will help with oxygen delivery into the tissues. So we've, that's been well studied within the, in the literature. Interestingly, um, uh, there's been a nice study done where they compared 40 second breath holds on an inhalation compared with slightly less, a 30 second breath hold on an exhalation because it's a little bit harder to hold uh, your breath when you haven't got uh, a big inhale of, of oxygen into your or air into your, into your lungs. The 30 second exhale uh, outperformed was better than a 40 second inhale for improving cerebral blood flow. This has been studied. And what they, um, what they saw was uh, uh, an improvement in cerebral blood flow between 47 and 87%. And the 30 second breath hold after an exhalation outperforming uh, a, a 40 second inhalation uh, breath hold, but both improved cerebral blood flow. But from around 50 to so 47 to 87, around 50 to 80 odd percent improvement in cerebral blood flow by simply holding the breath. Now, when we are um, under the stress of an acute part of our, um, our brain injury and our concussions and potentially very sensitive to carbon dioxide, we probably won't be holding anywhere near a 30 second breath hold. We might just be holding our breath for just a couple of seconds to help restore that relationship and expose ourselves to slightly, tiny bit, tiny baby steps, elevation in carbon dioxide. And I'll explain this when we go through the exercises at the end. So I'm not trying to say um, we need to be doing holding our breath strongly to try and really force some adaptations. No, we need to be aware that the brain is uh, in a state of repair, recovery, or trying to, and we don't want to stress that system. 
because the other thing that's really um, important with understanding getting the brain to reduce inflammation and getting the brain to recover is the effect on the autonomic nervous system. And this is where we get to link in our breathing, how it's related to our autonomic nervous system and our sort of stress response. And can we get ourselves into a more of a state of parasympathetic activity and out of that state of sympathetic stress that's created from the trauma of an injury, but at the same time is exasperated by that faster uh, respiratory breathing rate, as well as those poorer, in more inefficient mechanics. So hopefully you can start to see how all this is linked in together because that carbon dioxide effect is one of the things that's driving that, um, driving that sort of cascade of events. And we need to come in with an intervention to actually change this. So the study I mentioned was the American Journal of Neuroradiology from 1999. So it's been out there for a while showing that when we are increasing um, pressure of carbon dioxide within the blood, we get this vasodilating effect and uh, some significant improvements in cerebral blood flow. And that was after um, holding the breath. There's been plenty of literature and studies been done out there that shows that in humans and in animals, when we increase pressure of carbon dioxide within the blood, we get an improvement in cerebral blood flow. We get an improvement in vasodilating. And we know the opposite, um, it's been well studied that the opposite happens when we reduce the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. So when we're more, uh, when we're more sensitive to carbon dioxide, we get this vasoconstricting effect. So blood vessels constricting and reduction in blood flow. So that's that's well studied, well researched, well known. And what we're trying to then do is tailor the um, exercises that we're going to give for someone that suffered from a brain injury concussion that's specific to them, taking into account that. Um, improving cerebral blood flow with some breath holding, they just need to be appropriate, is gonna be a really, really, really key um, element to that brain's recovery and recalibrating that brain and body's relationship with the effect of carbon dioxide. When we're coming on to trying to make an assessment of um, ourselves or someone that suffered a brain injury or concussion, uh, there are some simple breathing um, assessments that we can do to get a gauge of like, where are they at with their sensitivity to carbon dioxide, which gives you an indication of what that cerebral blood flow might be like, um, and also what sort of state the nervous system is in, in relation to that sort of stress response. So there is, um, it is just worth just mentioning about um, the effect that breathing has and an injury would have on our nervous system. And also then it will make sense as to what we might do in an assessment and how we can then utilize breathing and things like heart rate variability training to help um, with that nervous system dysregulation that will have happened from the trauma of an injury as well as the poor breathing that's as a result of the trauma of the injury is going to have an effect on our autonomic nervous system function too. So one thing uh, just as a, as a base level that we do understand from uh, the autonomic nervous system and breathing is that every inhale that we take, the nervous system is more upregulated. So our heart rate increases every inhale and that's, um, and that's upregulating, it's more sympathetic dominant. But then the same, the opposite, not the same, but the opposite happens with the exhalation. With every exhalation, my heart rate reduces, it's more parasympathetic promoting, like the opposite of the fight or flight, the rest digest. So we're gonna be wanting to try to get that nervous system to shift away from that sort of stress response um, in that acute phase and get it into a state of rest, digest, restore, let it feel safe, let those recovery processes happen 
whilst at the same time trying to improve that cerebral blood flow. One interesting thing comes back to that carbon dioxide again. We know that carbon dioxide um, has a positive effect on vagal tone and the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve. It's one of the longest nerves in the body or the longest nerve in the body and sends 80% of its information from the body back up to the brain. And it's a key player in that autonomic nervous system function. And when we can uh, increase a little bit of activation of it, stimulate the vagus nerve, improve vagal tone, we can see that the autonomic nervous system will be able to balance itself better. And it's going to be out of whack a little bit. It's going to be dysregulated from the trauma of a brain injury. And so improving our relationship with carbon dioxide not only is going to help improve that cerebral blood flow, but we also know that carbon dioxide tolerance or sensitivity to carbon dioxide plays a positive effect when we improve it on the vagus nerve that's running through the diaphragm. And then you go, okay, so when we're doing diaphragmatic breathing, we're also helping stimulate that vagus nerve. Yes, we are. So that's one of the reasons why the mechanics is going to be important as well. But during, uh, we'll see, during the um, acute phase, and when we're working with someone that's breathing has been quite significantly affected from a brain injury, um, the mechanics might be the last thing, ironically, not ironically, but it will make sense when we go through it. It might be the last thing that we go to or the thing that we worry about the least at the start. And I'll explain more when we go through the assessments and the exercises um, to do with that. But do understand that our breathing will affect our nervous system and our nervous system will have been affected from the brain injury. And I guess one of the um, most obvious, and it's maybe not even an assessment, but just getting engaged with how much is someone mouth breathing when they're at rest and not really thinking about their breathing? Have they got into a pattern of mouth breathing, which is linked into that fight or flight stress response? And uh, part of that is some of those dysfunctional breathing traits. And what we see is when we can switch to nasal breathing, we have a different effect on the nervous system. It has a calming effect on the nervous system. Different parts of the brain start to sync up the olfactory cortex, the agmagdala, the um, hippocampus, they synchronize together when we're nasal breathing compared to when we're mouth breathing. And you know, when they scan people's brains through a functional MRI scanning imagery, we can see that these, um, these parts of the brain are online together, that the nervous system is more down-regulated. It has a calming effect on the body when we are nasal breathing compared to when we are mouth breathing. So as a starting point, getting an awareness for yourself, catching yourself, am I, am I, am I more tender, do I have a more tendency to, uh, or a more tendency, do I have a greater tendency to mouth breathe post my brain injury, post my concussion, compared to normal? If you're working with a client, the first thing they come in, and you just notice when they're sat and relaxed, is their mouth closed? And are they able to breathe in and out through the nose? And starting point one is encouraging them during their daily activities, during rest, to try to close the mouth and try and get that, that nose, letting the air flow nicely in and out. Okay, so the, um, the assessments, um, we're gonna try and keep it simple. Um, there is, if you have some tech, I'm doing some work with Dr. Jay Wells at um, Hanu Health, where they have a, um, it's just a, a, a Polar 10 uh, heart rate monitor that linked up to the, 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 the key is in their hardware, in their app, where um, it takes that heart rate, but actually works on heart rate variability 
and contract that in real time. So you can literally see how your heart rate variability is changing whilst you do a breathing exercise. But equally, it will give us a baseline of where someone's heart rate variability is. And heart rate, I don't want to go into the detail necessarily of like breaking down exactly what heart rate variability is. I'm going to have him as a guest on the, on the podcast to explain that. But it is a, um, a sign, a signaling of our autonomic nervous system function. So you can get some actual data on your heart rate variability. And if you're um, able to take it, you know, if you're a rugby player, for example, have it taken at the start of the season. And then if you've had a brain injury or concussion, you can reference back to that and have a look at your heart rate variability to give you a bit of an idea of like where is the nervous system actually at for a lot of us we might not have that tech and um, one thing we know as i said that breathing is related to our heart rate variability or nervous system so it'll be related to our heart rate variability taking um, the bolt score this is the body oxygen level test from the oxygen advantage it's the, the 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 best simple tool we have to make an assessment of our breathing of anybody's um, breathing it is the time delay um, after a normal exhalation until you feel the first desire to take another inhalation. So effectively, when we take a normal inhale and normal exhale, then stop, like pause, how long it takes for your brain to send a message through the phrenic nerve to your diaphragm to commence breathing tells us how sensitive you are to carbon dioxide. So the bolt score would literally be you'd take a normal breath in, a normal breath out, you'd pause, pinch the nose, and you'd be waiting. When do you get that first definite desire to breathe in? When you get that urge to breathe, don't use any willpower, let go, breathe in. Breathing should be relatively normal because you've not used any willpower. We're looking at the auto. What's the auto signals going on from your brain? That tells us how sensitive you are to carbon dioxide that's building up whilst you're doing that pause. So at the end of an exhale, you're pausing, waiting for CO2 to get to a point. It's not oxygen going low, just where CO2 gets to a point where your brain says, oh, we need to breathe now, because it will breathe, and then it will get rid of that carbon dioxide on the next exhale. So that tells us how sensitive we are to carbon dioxide. We want that to be about 25 seconds, which is quite a lot. When I started, my bolt was around about eight or nine seconds. I'd become quite... Um, uh, sensitive to carbon dioxide but this was year, this was about four years out I probably took that four or five years after my brain injury so it hadn't normalized itself I had a client recently who um, had a brain injury 18 months ago came to see me because a doctor that I work with has referenced to say okay I think you might need to work on your breathing Jacko specializes with this and particularly an experience with the concussions and brain injury they had no idea that there was anything wrong with their breathing and their bolt score was three seconds. So in, out, pause. After three seconds, that urge to breathe in kicked in. Very sensitive to carbon dioxide, okay? The other thing that we would do is um, just take a simple breathing, uh, breathing rate assessment or respiratory rate assessment. If you do that with one hand on your upper chest and one hand just below your sternum where your ribs meet, you'll be able to get a gauge of like, how upper chest am I breathing compared to how diaphragmatic? So an idea of your mechanics whilst counting your breathing. Just set a timer for 30 seconds. Try to just let the breath happen, observe the breath. See, we, again, we wanna see what the auto is. What's the automatic rate that you'll breathe at? Don't control it. So set a timer for 30 seconds on your watch. Just breathe in and out. It's one breath, just count how many breaths you take. And also get a feel of like the mechanics. 
So am I breathing from lower down here with my diaphragm or is it more upper chest movement? There's more detail around the mechanics and rib cage articulation um, for sure than just breathing high or breathing low. Um, but it's not going to be the most important factor that is going to improve our cerebral blood flow and our uh, brain function and our brain's recovery. Equally, it's going to be hard to improve your mechanics whilst you're breathing at such a fast rate driven by the CO2 sensitivity. So I mentioned that I'll, I'll, I'll explain why you're not going to start with mechanics probably first with a, a client that's um, suffering from a brain injury and reduced cerebral blood flow because it's carbon dioxide that we need to improve that relationship to improve that cerebral blood flow and oxygen delivery. And whilst we're very sensitive to carbon dioxide, so if our bolt score is very low and our breathing rate is very fast, it's going to be hard for us to work on our mechanics because we're constantly being triggered to breathe quite fast. And when we're triggered to breathe quite fast because we're sensitive to carbon dioxide, your mechanics are going to be altered. So start with recalibrating that relationship with carbon dioxide, slowing down that respiratory rate, and then we can get into mechanics um, after that. So two very simple tests, bolt score and your respiratory rate, and then you can get a gauge of your mechanics, but that's not the mechanics aren't the thing to worry about the most. I'll try to address first. Um, and then if you have tech, you could use something like the Hanu Health um, uh, heart rate variability to get an indicator of that. If your bolt score is low, your heart rate variability is very likely to be low. The two things are linked. We want higher heart rate variability to sign of good autonomic nervous system function and less sympathetic drive, but it's not um, not uncommon for um, us to be in a, in a heightened state of stress and inflammation from that injury and we can do stuff with our breathing that will help improve our breathing, our cerebral blood flow and that autonomic nervous system as well. Okay, so what are the, the exercises? We're going to give you three simple exercises to get started. We don't need to overcomplicate it. They're all going to be focused on improving cerebral blood flow, improving the body's relationship with carbon dioxide and also one to help downregulate the nervous system a little bit. But remember, as you improve cerebral blood flow and as you improve your body's relationship with carbon dioxide, you will improve vagal tone and autonomic nervous system. So they're always going to be linked in together. The first one is uh, from the Oxford Vantage called Many Short Breath Holds or Breathing Recovery. It's where we would literally take two normal breaths in and out, in, now in, and out. So two casual, normal, gentle breaths in and out through the nose because the nasal breathing is important, and then pause. We might just pause for one second or two seconds. And then we breathe in for two breaths, in and out, in and out. This can be just done sat at rest or could be done lying down. And then we pause again for one or two seconds. And then in, out. And with each of the two breaths that we take, we try and just calm. And then we pause. When we pause, we're just slowing that overall breathing rate because we're not breathing. And what importantly, what we're doing is softly, gently, just pausing so that CO2 levels rise just a tiny bit. Not a lot, not in a way that's stressful for the body, but in a way that's relaxing for the body. So the carbon dioxide helps with that um, circulation, helps with that cerebral effect. It can be relaxing for the body when we just add a little bit more. So it's gentle little pauses. Those pauses should be no, if someone's bolt score is very low, below 10 seconds, that pause should be no more than half of their bolt score. So that client I had that their bolt score was three seconds, we were pausing for like one or one and a half seconds. Their bolt score is now like nine, 10 seconds, so we can pause for more four or five seconds. Okay, and you can gradually, as it feels comfortable to pause for one second, 
you can increase that pause to two. When that pause for two seconds feels comfortable, increase it to three and so on. And you're starting to just recalibrate that body's relationship with the pausing, which is when this carbon dioxide isn't leaving the body. So just increasing those levels of carbon dioxide gently, which is gonna help with that cerebral blood flow. And you'd be looking to do that for a few minutes um, at a time, maybe five, 10 minutes, and for a few times um, a day. It can be done sat down or lying down, and it should be calming, it should be um, restorative, and it should be relaxing. Okay, so that's many short breath holds. That's a great starting point. The second one is a breathing light exercise where we're gonna focus on the extension of the exhalation rather than necessarily too much air hunger, which could feel a little bit stressful. We're gonna focus on extending the exhalation with humming. And what that hum does is the vagus nerve that I've mentioned already goes through the diaphragm. It also comes through the voice box. And when we create hums, the vibrations of humming innovate that vagus nerve and help increase vagal tone. That's great for restoring that autonomic nervous system function, that communication back from the body to the brain. And so that would be very simply, again, sitting or lying down, trying to keep the mouth closed, lips softly together, teeth not touching, tongue to the roof of the mouth, trying to calm and just settle your breathing and get it to a point where it's quiet on the inhale. And then humming hmm, on the exhale. That hum naturally extends the exhalation, which we know is down-regulating for the nervous system or parasympathetic promoting when we extend the exhalation. We release a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, helps lower your heart rate. So we know that that's happening. I don't want you to force that or make it like forcefully make it longer because it will make your next inhale be a bit aggressive, a bit stressed. We want everything to be calming and relaxing. Remember, we're trying to restore. We're trying to let the brain and body repair. We're trying to let the nervous system downregulate. So it's going to just be a soft, gentle, but calm inhalation through the nose. And we hum on the way out. Mm, relax into it. Mm, whenever you get the urge to breathe in, you just take a gentle, quiet breath in. Mm. A nice thing we're looking out for is a buildup of saliva in the mouth. So after you've done that for a few minutes, you might notice yourself swallowing and there'll be a buildup of saliva in the mouth. That's a sign that you've shifted into a state of rest digest and that rest digest is that down regulation parasympathetic activity. So when you notice more saliva, that's a good thing. That's your body getting into a state of recovery. So silent, gentle, relaxed breath in humming to extend the exhalation on the way out, but in a nice relaxed fashion, not trying to create um, any challenge for the body. So that's exercise, the second exercise for you to do. And then the third exercise is once we're able to get to a state where um, walking is fine, doesn't trigger any of our symptoms, then um, we'd be looking to do some uh, breath holds whilst walking, very gently, just taking a normal breath in, a normal breath out, pinch the nose and walk for just five paces. It doesn't want to be stressful at all. It's only gonna last a few seconds, but it's just getting used to some low, very low level aerobic exercise, i.e. walking, and then just a gentle breath hold to just increase that cerebral blood flow by increasing uh, the carbon dioxide within the body gently. You would rest for 30 seconds or so, 
should be feeling nice and calm. This is not a challenging breath hold at all. You're taking five steps, that's it. You could even reduce it, it could be slightly less. But once those five steps start to become really comfortable over a few sessions or a few weeks, then you might be able to start increasing that eventually up to sort of 10 seconds or even 15 seconds. Um, so start small with this. It wants to be done. If, if going out for a walk triggers your symptoms like headaches and things like that, then obviously don't start this protocol. But we know that um, any protocols now within um, uh, concussion recovery is getting back to low level aerobic work as quickly as possible so long as it doesn't trigger our symptoms. What that low level aerobic work is doing is increasing blood flow as you're starting to exercise at a very gentle rate. What we can do is just with walking like this, some simple little breath holds, just five steps is going to not only increase circulation because you're moving and walking, but increasing CO2 just gently within the body that's gonna help with that vasodilating effect and gonna help with that cerebral blood flow. So it's being clever about using a little gentle breath hold alongside the well-documented um, do some low level aerobic work so long as it doesn't trigger our symptoms. And, and that's our third simple exercise um, to help us start to recalibrate our body's relationship with carbon dioxide so that we can improve cerebral blood flow, improve oxygen delivery to the tissues um, and help our nervous system get into a state where it will reduce inflammation, where it will start to do that restorative um, processes that it needs to do in order to recover so long as the brain is getting that blood flow that it needs and that is going to be come down to that CO2 relationship and reminding ourselves that carbon dioxide yes it's our stimulus to breathe and yes we have to get it out but when we've become sensitive to it when we get rid of too much of it oxygen doesn't get into the tissues as easily and really importantly from a brain injury perspective that vasodilation that that cerebral blood flow is going to stay constricted and we know when we're trying to heal someone's brain we're trying to get our brain back functioning and get it recovering we need to improve that cerebral blood flow and those three simple exercises um, in that order are going to be a great way to just softly introduce some breathing exercises to help with that. Um, and I think the final thing that I'd say on it is that when you're yourself, as I've experienced 10 years ago, or you're working with somebody that is struggling with um, uh, the acute phase of a brain injury and concussion and that you're, you're sent home from hospital and told to do nothing, and just cross your fingers and hope that you get better. That's literally all I was told. Don't stimulate your brain at all, don't do anything. Giving someone some tools, giving someone, giving people some hope, and that's what I'm doing, hoping to do with, I'm hoping to do with this, is give you some hope that this works for one, and it's giving you something, and it's based on science, and I know that it works, it's worked for me, and it works with clients that I work with, um, that, you know, I so said the gentleman, their bolts went from three to nine seconds, their respiratory went from 24 breaths per minute down to 12 breaths per minute over the course of about six to eight weeks. And now sleeps all the way through the night, can go out for a walk and not feel out of breath, focus and attention and energy levels during the day have been life-changing in a literally an eight-week process. And their brain injury was 18 months ago. And they were going about the world, like, why can't I sleep? Why am I stressed? Why have I got no energy? Why am I always out of breath? Not equating it to being something to do with a brain injury that happened 18 months ago. Those three simple little exercises I've shared with you there is exactly what I did with that client. And uh, it's been a life-changing uh, restorative process for, for their brain. So it does work and it gives you something to do mentally that's so like beneficial that 
right, here's some exercise, here's something you can do even though you're lying in your bed because that's all that you can do. You can't go out walking yet, you can't go out running yet, you can't do anything, you can't get back to your sport. Rather than just crossing our fingers and hoping, do these simple breathing exercises a few times during the day. It gives you some power back in terms of your, um, you're doing something for your recovery. You're taking charge, you're taking control of it, and it is gonna improve your cerebral blood flow. It is gonna calm your nervous system down, and it is gonna help you uh, recover. Uh, the the the, um, the totality of your recovery is going to be dependent on how much damage and, and how severe the brain um, injury was. Um, so that is going to be independent on the person, but it's definitely going to help improve your symptoms, improve your cerebral blood flow and improve your brain. Whether you um, get to like fully restored is going to depend on a number of different factors and one of those is going to be how severe the brain injury was um, in the first place. But I, I sincerely know and believe in my heart and having looked at the re literature and the research over the last 60 years that it is going to help. It is going to help. Um, so this is, if this is for you, um, I hope it helps. Um, let me know if you've got any questions. You can email me info at probreathwork.com or hit me up on Instagram, jacko.david.jackson. Um, or if you're looking to work with somebody or if you know somebody, like share this, share this podcast, get it to the people that need it. Um, and I say there'll be, um, I'm going to be looking to produce a, um, a short course on the, on the probreathwork.com uh, website and platform, which will be available on the app as well in due course. It's not ready yet, but it will be, um, and putting together a presentation that will be focused probably more so on like practitioners, physios, therapists, medical staff that are working uh, with clients, whether it's in sport or out of sport, um, on helping their brains uh, recover from trauma, from concussions, from uh, brain injury so do look out for that and again if you're interested let me know um, info at probreathwork.com and I will uh, share that with you when it's ready um, thank you for watching thank you for sharing thank you for being part of the between best podcast um, I hope this has been a helpful series even if you've got nothing to do with um, brain injuries or you've hopefully you've never had one and will never have one but I hope that understanding how breathing affects our nervous system and our brain will actually help you whether you're uh, looking to improve your stress resilience because your stress is not from a brain injury, it's from other things in life that you get some tools within there um, as well. So thank you for listening. I've been Jacko. You've been listening and breathing. Till next time, keep it nasal. <laughs>